Hello, and welcome to Preferred Return. So this is a podcast about private equity and venture capital, or to be more specific about the role of technology within private equity and venture capital firms. My name is Kale. I head up revenue and go to market for Alvia, and I am joined by Jeff Williams, AKA Dubs, who is our SVP of industry solutions and strategy. Wanna say what's up, Dubs? How are we doing, y'all? All right, so our hope is to bring together the best and brightest across the entire industry and have them share some of the best practices, some of the trends they're seeing, and how firms are using technology to gain an edge in the market. Am I missing anything, Dubs? I want to say that I'm going to be making all of the podcast music, and I hope you dig it. Yes, we should be honest. This is ultimately about your life and career as a rock and roller, so please expect some fresh tunes with each episode. Should we get on with the show? Let's get after it. No doubt. Giddy up. Let's jump in first. Tell us about Triton Lake. We've been working with you guys for a couple of years now, and I unfortunately haven't had a chance to work with you uh, super closely. I hear a lot about you guys. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to and how you came to be. Yeah, sure. So my background pre-Triton Lake, and I founded Triton Lake in 2015, uh, but my background prior to that was as a partner in a global software business. So I was a software entrepreneur for a bunch of years. I joined that company in 1997 and started out heading up technology, but moved over to the dark side of sales in 2000. Eventually, we sold that business to a private equity firm in New York in the mid-2000s. And as I was on the, the way out that door, I started or the mid-2010s, I should say, if that's even the right phrase. But as we were exiting that, I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And that business had provided technology and managed services to global investment managers and wealth managers. And I had gained an in-depth understanding of the, the data points, the actual structures that were at play in terms of the investment industry built quite a foundation, both sides of the Atlantic in terms of senior executives in some of those global organizations. So clearly when I was thinking about what Connor 2.0 looked like, I wanted it to stay in the investment management world. I wanted it to be able to leverage some of that network that I built out, but not exclusively dependent. I was pretty clear I didn't want to do another software startup, right? So I had a bunch of conversations and it's, I think that's always the best way to, to grow any business idea is to talk to as many people as you can that are even directly or adjacently connected to a space you're considering. And gradually the embryo that is, was Triton Lake was formed. And at the start, I tapped onto a trend in terms of teams leaving the big wirehouses and private banks with multi-billion dollar portfolios of assets under management and forming their own independent entities to service the ultra high net worth individuals and families that they had been serving in those bigger entities. But now everything from an investment perspective was being decided at head office or at home office. And as well as wanting to get in control of their own economic destiny, they felt restricted in terms of what they could bring those investors. So in seeing that trend, uh, my initial thinking was they could be a good way of raising capital from those newer type entities. And I did a lot of research and probably spoke to a few hundred RIAs that focused on the ultra high net worth space to end up with a network of 70 or 80 of those firms, I would say. And this is going back to probably 2017, 2018 kind of time, because there was a couple of years of uh, hard yards in terms of building the network and speaking to those folks and trying to relay the value proposition in terms of what we would bring to them which was then as it is now, and we're going to bring them 
differentiated investment opportunities that they're not going to hear about. So we have that as the shop window. And, and my, if I go back to, to my thinking then in terms of how we were going to proceed, I felt that the opportunity was to bring international funds. And at the time, I thought it was probably hedge funds, right, to, to that network as a shop window that they wouldn't be they wouldn't be speaking to directly. But as we as the conversations continued with those investor entities, it became clear that their appetite was much more on the private market side, which actually suited me better because I was far more interested in that space. And also, as I got speaking to some of the, the GPs in, in the US, it became clear that the segment of the market that I had carved out from an investor perspective was not something that they covered well themselves. Um, and nor was it something that was an area of focus for some of the larger placement agents either. So set about raising capital for a few funds from the, the network. And if we fast forward to, to where we are today, the network now is north of 200 entities in the U, over $4 trillion in combined assets under management. Not just those multi-family office RAAs, we also cover fund of funds, outsourced chief investment offices, some of the university endowments, particularly when they have emerging manager programs, because a lot of what we do, we make relevant to the, the check size from our investor network, which tends to be in the 10 to $30 million range in terms of a primary fund commitment. And that leads them to want to work with funds that are sub billion dollar in terms of raise size. So, and it feeds into their value proposition as well. So if I'm a, uh, if I'm, managing the, the the portfolios for an ultra high net worth individual or family, I'm not adding much value and justifying my own fees by bringing them KKR's latest fund, clearly, right? Yeah. But if I bring them something that's much nichier and more differentiated and has a story behind it and a team that can really articulate that story and you can get behind, then that's adding value to their business and it's adding value to their to what their client expects to see. So as obviously off the back of that, our job then really is to go out and find the most interesting opportunities we can to bring to the network. And we probably look at, I think we looked at this recently, and I think we screen over 1,500 opportunities a year. We probably speak to two or 300, and that boils down to 20 or 30 that we might bring to the network. And some of them will be focused, very targeted efforts over a short period of time, and some of them will be across the fundraise to a broad list of names. I was going to say, there's something really interesting in there. And I want to actually come back to it. So I've jotted it down. I want to hear a little bit, Connor, you and Melissa had a chance to work together previously. Is that right? We did work. So as part of the, the software business I mentioned that got sold to a private equity firm, that was part of a roll-up. And the entity that Melissa worked for was rolled into the same kind of platform, a global regulatory and compliance platform. So that's where our paths crossed. And we got on well from that capacity in terms of the business together. It made sense. When I was looking for someone to fulfill a senior marketing role in Triton Lake, that Melissa and I reconnected. And that's what happens today. Melissa drives marketing for us. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more, Melissa. I mean, don't you just love when you come across people that you're like, I'll work with that person again, right? So <laughs> clearly something going on. Tell us a little bit about your perspective. Maybe you're like, I didn't really like working with Connor all that much, but okay. I can't imagine that's you could, the case. You could say that, Melissa. Maybe, you can yeah, say maybe, that. maybe we brought her onto the podcast so she can say that. Now, can tell us a little bit about yourself, Melissa. Yeah, so as Connor mentioned, we, we met and when our companies came together and it was one of those 
things where you knew that we were going to be friends no matter what, at least from my perspective anyway. And we really just hit it off. And so when Connor left, we stayed in touch and then uh, it just worked out. Love it. Gotta love bumping into people that, yeah, that you will work with again. I'll say it uh, many more times. All right. I, know, I would to put that in context as the so our team now is up to eight people and from the eight people as well as Melissa our COO Jeff Willems who is the one we joke about in terms right. of your name Jeff he was actually in the that's all for business as well working with me for many years so that was a no-brainer for me when I heard that Jeff was was open to, to new opportunities and I was looking for a COO. He joined on the 1st of January last year, right? Just a, a few months before the, the pandemic hit. I knew it was the right decision before any of that happened. But I can tell you one thing, having someone that I could rely on, and I hadn't had much time to spend face-to-face with through the last 50, 15 months has been phenomenally beneficial. Yeah. Um, and, and also Maliki O'Neill, who is in Luxembourg for us since last uh, October, is someone that I worked with way back when in 99 to 2001. So there's a lot to be said for, for if you find back the together. Yeah. To get the band back together. Exactly. Right. As long as I can play lead guitar, I'll get any band back together. That's the you way know, it, that concerned. I'm going to say this because we talk about music on the podcast, music, I record the podcast music. And I became randomly obsessed with country music one day. It's a couple of years back. And so I've been now that we're opening back up, I've been trying to find country bands to play with. And it's funny because my wife, we I drove all the way down to about an hour away from here, kind of middle of nowhere, southern part of Denver. My wife thought like, are these guys any good? And here's what I said, which is relevant. I said, you just never know who you're going to you know, bump into. And it's a little bit like companies, right? You get bought, you get combined with some. And the story going into these things oftentimes might be like, oh, I don't know, you'll see. Yeah. That company's a mess, right? But you do find people that you are glad you bumped into and which you will work with again at the country jam that I went to. An 83-year-old pedal guitar, oh, yeah. pedal steel guitar player, like which makes cool. country music. Yeah. And so I was like curious as to how I was going to ask this 83 year old legend, like, Hey, do, would you want to play music? And he asked me before I even had to decide. So I was so extremely flattered. So that was my story about bumping into the soulmate. Guitar no, and it's, it's, you know, the, the relevant point about the, uh, that you make there that's disguised in some of the words is the, when you work with people, you get a firsthand experience of where their skills are. And I, I think that companies oftentimes see somebody doing a good job in ABC and say, why don't we get Melissa to try DEF as well? Because she did such a good job of ABC, right? And as we all know, things don't work like that. And if you're good at the steel string guitar and an opportunity comes up to play steel string guitar somewhere else, why would you look elsewhere when you know you're somebody that is a good guitarist, right? And that's what I've tried to do. And in scaling any business, People is the single most important thing, whatever about strategy and anything else. Still, that's a fundamental part of our plan as we continue to grow and scale um, from where we are today. Well, and it's a perfect segue because it takes us back to that point that I'm interested in talking about. So we have held the belief at Alvia that technology, well, to put it in a punchy way, that technology is starting to emerge that might be considered or interpreted perhaps even as a threat to like the placement agent model, right? In the sense that 
I don't ever see GPs and LPs being very transactional, but you know, there's a lot of talk I've heard this, this idea that, okay, well maybe technology could start to match people, which is an implied threat perhaps to you. But like what you were saying is that Connor is that you guys are doing really well at helping LPs find differentiated GPs with an interesting story. And like, that's super interesting, right? Because in this same theory of kind of Tinder for PE, there is a, at least a fantasy world where maybe those LPs could be finding these GPs directly, but they're not, you guys are doing a tremendous job of doing it. And I know that I happen to know because you're a customer of ours, that you're technology focused, you guys are doing some really cool stuff with technology, but I'm interested in what is it that is like, it's, is it still just a storytelling business? I mean, the technology can like present stories, but it can't really tell stories, right? Much like the, the dating headline on Tinder can like say who you are, but when you actually are dating the person in person and hearing the stories from them and hearing how they describe it, totally different thing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I hate using it, but the dating analogy isn't a bad one in this instance because the technology can help to provide that initial qualification triage. Is this of potential interest or not? And then the storytelling comes back next, right? I think it's unlikely that if it doesn't tick the initial boxes, that the, the storytelling is ever going to change that, particularly from an institutional investment perspective, whatever about dating. <laughs> I think in some instances, the personality might have a chance in the dating world. I think if someone isn't looking at private credit and they hear a story, a great private credit story, it's not going to make them invest in private credit, right? That's the, the difference as I would see it. But from our perspective, and fundamental to the strategy and my belief in what will make us succeed is that no matter how strong the relationships we have with these investors is, we still only get a sliver of their attention, right? These folks are inundated with emails, phone calls, everything, all day long, every day, with people competing for their money and their attention. So maximizing the impact of that is how you succeed or fail. And you, by, to do that, you make every communication as relevant, as value-add, and as interesting as possible. And that's how you succeed. And the day you stop doing that, the next time you have a sliver, it doesn't get quite as much attention. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah, how do you do that? You do it by keeping the information very focused. You do it by keeping the opportunities you work with interesting, right? So you build a reputation for Triton Lake work with interesting opportunities. It's worth a look. That's that. But I mean, to facilitate it, technology is a key part of that. Tell us more about that. I mean, because like the thing I was thinking when you were talking about your background is like, I'm a software executive myself and it's hard now to ever go anywhere, do anything, talk to anyone really, and not be seeing software in some you know capacity. And so in this case, I'm like, sometimes I never want to work in software again. I just want to, I don't know, something totally still just want to be a rock star, man. Yeah. Um, yeah it's never too old to be a rock star. Look at all the old, look at the rock stars we followed in the eighties. They're still rock stars. Thank you for saying that. I couldn't say that myself. Yeah, I think my mindset, Jeff, was more, I don't want to build a software startup and start writing code that we own and have to maintain. Yeah. Uh, but from day one, it was always, we, we would leverage technology um, where and when it makes sense. And we have a we have quite a powerful stack of technology at our disposal today. And if we touch on the, the various aspects of it, obviously Alvia is a core part when it comes to to CRM, fundraising, all of that aspect of it is captured there, along with investor preferences so that we can carefully target where we send opportunities and 
and track to that. Uh, we also have a, an online portal where our investors have one secure web site they can go to to see any of the opportunities that we're in the market with at any point in time. That's a third party piece as well that's white labeled, fully branded Triton Lake and everything as you would expect works on mobile devices and so forth. Alongside that, since last summer, we've been using HubSpot to do very personalized and targeted communications. So we use that to any new mandate launch. We'll go out and in here, we have our, our dating attributes, if you like. Yeah, so yeah, it'll yeah. have the, the fund size, the asset class, a description, the return profile, a brief description, some highlights about the opportunity. And in, in talking to our the LPs about what would they like to see, that's enabled us to, to give them enough to, to make at least a yes, no, maybe decision, right? Which sure. is, it saves them having to open a deck. It's making it more efficient for them. So we'll use it for those. They also get a monthly highlights email where they can see the five most relevant opportunities to them. And on that point, in order to ascertain what the, the most relevant opportunities are, we've just got a third party to build a piece of recommendation software that takes that base intelligence we have about the investor preferences of each individual, not even each firm, each individual within a firm, takes that and augments it with their interactions with us on the phone, on the portal, through the emails, to give a match rating score for any of those opportunities. So we can show folks the opportunities that should be the best fit based on their interactions and what we know about them at the top of the list and keep them front and center. And if there's opportunities that are highly unlikely to be a fit, we'll hide them somewhere at the back of the room and they can find them if they want to, they go digging. But it's not, we shouldn't be wasting time pressuring them to have, have you had a look at this or having it was the first thing on a list that they get in an email. It doesn't make sense to do that. Yeah, I can't help since we've already gotten into the subject, but I'm imagining a lot of similarities now and a lot of parallels between like dating apps. And it's, so in many ways, I mean, you're saving people from like LPs from not having to like go to every bar ever and try to meet every GP. You're, the recommendations, for example, like you're saying, hey, swipe right, swipe left. You've already swiped by telling us what you're interested in. And now you're just making it, you know, very efficient for them to get in there. That's how you build a, a matchmaking business, right? I mean, it's like you're in the business of, of finding and, and matching LPs and GPs. And I can't imagine you'd be too effective and successful at it if you weren't making it, like if you weren't finding matches, right? Or if you weren't saying at least like, how do these five look? Exactly. And yeah, I'll go on dates with them. And, and so you're very focused on that. How, like, just more generally, I mean, how different is that? I mean, there's levels of complexity as we're talking about the technology. You guys seem to have made it very simple, perhaps a complex problem that you're solving, but made it very simple on the sort of matches. How, I'm curious, like bigger placement agents and stuff, maybe people you compete with. I mean, is there still a lot of old school? Very much so. That combined with an old school sales, chasing people on the phone. Did you look at this? Did you look at this? Even if they told them two days ago, they don't like that kind of thing, right? So um, that seems to be the case. The other, the, the feedback we get in terms of the portal is that it's phenomenally institutional quality and they've no idea why the bigger uh, placement agents don't have something similar. Yeah. Uh, which is always, uh, it's nice to hear that we're a little bit different as well because we try to be. And yeah, I think it's just, it's still the larger ones are more based on the bigger institutional allocators, which they operate differently than the, the folks that we speak to. Yeah. 
I want to come back to that because I'm interested in getting your take on where this market's headed in the future. But I want to ask Melissa a few questions. So Melissa, marketing role, marketing background. I know enough to be dangerous with our marketing efforts. So Kale, who I love to death, he was he's our CRO. He's new to the uh, company as of about a year ago. And he was our first podcast uh, episode guest. And he said something, he used a phrase like, if you're finding out that you're really successful with bikers that wear leather jackets, then what you need to do is keep finding more bikers with leather jackets. And so like that has become this very simple phrase that describes marketing efforts generally, right? If it's interestingly complex, right? Like how do you measure and how do you find out even that you're good at working with bikers with leather jackets. So I'm, I'm curious just to hear a little bit about your role and how the technology plays. I mean, a marketing sort of focused role is a lot of like segmentation and things like that. And, and so I'm curious just to get your take on technology's role for you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think one, yes, that's a very intelligent way of describing marketing. Yes, you want to go find all of the bikers and leather jackets and then mm-hmm maybe uh, spin off of that and, and look at what other equipment they might be looking for. If they, if yeah. they're bikers w- with leather jackets, maybe they need some chaps too, or something along those lines. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, but yes, technology, I think you basically, you can't market without technology um, yeah. in this day and age. It's an analysis of data is probably the biggest role in what we're doing. You're just constantly looking at the data points and trying to synthesize them into something meaningful, something that you can do something with. Yeah, not just where can I find more bikers with leather jackets, but if bikers with leather jackets tend to like A, C, and F, what other, what are their peers that also like A, C, and F? And how do we find more of them, right? Because um, that's something that's oftentimes missed from a segmentation perspective is you think, oh, this is our sweet spot. But you miss out. I mean, the fact, if you think about our investor network, it's yes, the multifamily office entities that we identified as the, the core of the sweet spot at the start, but it's only through not trial and error, but through conversations and everything along the way that we learned that fund of funds like the same thing and uh, the OCIOs like the same kind of things as well, right? So you, if you take it that the multifamily offices are the bikers with leather jackets, I'm not going to. So if I, the ideas I pluck from my head to be the, the versions of the OCIOs and the fund of funds could probably offend people. So I'm not going to go there, but you get the point, right? So there's a couple of different ways. It's how do we get more bikers and how do we get more of the peers that like the same things that bikers like? And yeah. the other, also where you look for bikers in the US is different than where you look for bikers in Canada or Australia or the UK. So yeah. you, you need to nuance your marketing and your, your, your go to market as you look to expand and global we have ambitions to be a global entity. We operate internationally today, I would say, across Europe, Canada, and the US. But I would like to think that by the time January 2022 comes along, we're going to have active investors in Asia Pacific as well. So um, that's our direction of travel. No, no pun in- I would just also say, I think without making this a marketing podcast, but creating communities for people. So again, back to your analogy of the bikers, I mean, they're more likely to want to hang out with other bikers that wear leather jackets and talk about what they have in common and problems that they're having and get advice and recommendations from others like them. And so creating those communities where they can do that and you're a trusted advisor in that space is just common sense. 
I love that. So it turns out that biker rallies aren't just <laughs> part. Somebody was smart enough to know we got to bring these people together. Yeah. Exactly. I get a chance to work very closely with many of our customers. Unfortunately, I did not get a chance to work with you guys, but just tell us a little bit about what brought us together. I mean, what was it that like, cause here, and here's the question. It's not as, Hey, let's talk about Alvia now. What I'm really interested in is we're so similarly minded. Like this is like what we're you know trying to do. We oftentimes hear from people, oh, it's not out of the box. And for one, it is out of the box as much as I think anybody wants things to be that way. But the fact that people don't appreciate that, like being out of the box for certain things when it comes to software or technology misses an opportunity to be about what you're differentiated upon, right? Like this is what we want to use. We have a few customers that will refuse to let us publicize that we work with them, right? And I'm convinced that many of those believe it's like we have a secret weapon and we're not necessarily you know, trying to to talk too much about it, but we're so similar minded in that, that like we want to enable technology for you that starts to get into where you can, you know, be, you yeah, be differentiated. Everyone, everyone should have their own core value proposition and shouldn't be trying to reinvent the wheel is the way I view it. Right. And if yeah. you can leverage someone else that has a focus area that solves a problem well for you. And not only that, that they're going to continue investing in and you're going to benefit from that over yeah. time. Why would you try and do it yourself? Yeah. So, I didn't uh, tell you to say that, right? Con- you didn't tell me to say that, but it's true of not just our relationship with Alvia, but our relationship with the, the, the company that provides the, the portal with HubSpot yeah. as yeah. well. With that's It just makes total sense. And oftentimes it makes a good economic sense as well, because um, if you try and build something yourself, not only do you have to uh, have a higher cost to build it day one and you're more open to all kinds of problems that come with that, but if you ever want to tweak anything with it, it's a pain. So yeah, in, in our case, we work for listeners that are unaware. We do work uh, within the context of salesforce.com as a platform, but we're a software company. We aren't a Salesforce consultant. And so I, I think there is, and understandably so, there does tend to be this connotation with people that work around Salesforce is, ah, well, it's just yeah. a consulting thing. And it's really not, I think. Oh, so- and I think that that's a key part, right? And if we go back to the original question in terms of where did the relationship come from i think it it probably goes back to 2018 late 2018 i think i just got an email at the time right one of the uh, the kind of standard marketing email i had a standard instance of salesforce at that point that we were using for tracking just lps and gps but of course in the, their own structure and my thinking at the time had been i'm going to have to get uh, one of those third-party salesforce consultants that doesn't know had to spell private equity, never mind anything else, to come in, listen to me telling them about it for two weeks. Then they're going to go off. I'm going to have to pay them a fortune to do it. They're going to build it based on exactly what I I wanted as my requirement, only for me to realize after the fact that my requirement was flawed and the whole thing is going to be a pain in the ass. And while I was tossing this idea around in my head, I think I got a, a marketing email and I said, okay, I need to learn more about this. I had a couple of calls, met with Kevin in New York, and it became clear very quickly that this was quite different and that not only was it something that could be leveraged in terms of what I was looking to achieve and to fast track and get me there much quicker than I ever would have been able to try to build my own skin on top of it. But it was, Alvia knew what they were talking about. There wasn't going to be that education thing. They were going to be suggesting ideas to me and that's how this is what happened. And yeah, right. yes, the incident today is, is not exactly what was implemented when we finished 
like two years ago, must be nearly two years ago, yeah. um, because we've added to it as we've gone and everything else. But, you know, it does an awesome job in terms of what we need to, to accomplish. And there's no way we would have been able to get where we are today with trying to build things ourselves on top of standards, Salesforce. Well, appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. The, the thing I will add, because I actually went through this myself, I happen to be a buyer myself of Altvia software in a previous life. And I also happen to have prior to that paid a Salesforce consultant. And my experience was basically that those people have burners, like yeah. not all of what you said, Connor, but then also like six months after you've paid them and you're like, oh, I have this question that we never resolved. I really like, this is actual real life. The phone number that I had for these people no longer work. And we can't really hide from you because you have to pay us, not necessarily Salesforce. So we actually do our customers because we can't really hide from them. And that's one of the big differences. And we see this a lot and we've been doing this for 15 years. And that's, there's a lot of people like you that, that are struggling and we've done quite well with it. So I appreciate you saying that. I want to go back now and talk a little bit about, um, just the future of this market, right? So from your perspective, you kind of mentioned there's some big institutional placement agents that don't necessarily seem to get it. So I'm interested in hearing about that, but I'm also interested just generally, like, where do we go from here? We're coming off of a pretty significant event, right? It's pretty cliche now, but this whole COVID thing turns out is, was a big deal. And so whether or not it's going to have all the effects that the whole world thinks it will, I think this market's changed little bit as a result. I think there are LPs that are now looking at annual meetings and saying like, we can do annual meetings three in a day if the GPs are efficient. Doesn't mean that people don't want to travel again, right? Like face-to-face -face is always great. But yeah, I spoke to, interesting, things... interestingly on that point, I spoke to someone the other day, a GP that has decided to do an in-person and they're going to do both. So they're going to give people the option to travel and be there and meet their peers, or you can join remotely right so the i would get the, the direction of travel i would have said that i think there's a few things jeff i mean this um, we're talking about a few dynamics here right so i think the first thing i'd say if you, if you break it down in-person meetings in general i think that people have been starved of face-to-face -face interaction yeah. and they'll take a lot of that if they can get it and if they're sure. allowed right so there may be some companies that provide guidance that don't want it unless it's absolutely essential but you would argue if there's vaccination has happened and everything else why would you not allow it yeah. um, so that's one two travel i think there will be less travel because i think all of this has shown people that we don't need to put five people on a flight to the west coast because look at the time we lose in terms of travel and everything else doesn't make sense whatever about the environment which is another consideration now as well right so it's definitely going to it'll curb travel a little bit i think i read something recently that the um, the airline companies are aiming for like a 50% of what business travel was uh, recovery by 23 or something like that. And I could be pulling those stats from anywhere. So I'm going to heavily, heavily dis uh, caveat them. But Sounds reasonable. That would, yeah. that would okay. make sense. That would make sense, right? And that you would ask then, what does that mean in terms of annual meetings and conferences? And it probably means the same thing, right? So if you were to, if you had previously would have sent four people to a conference you probably don't send four now same for annual meetings same for on-site due diligences uh, interestingly if you're talking to lps i had this conversation with one in new york last week they were actually saying they're probably going to keep zoom for the first meeting with the gp prior to that they probably would it probably would have been one of the gp one of the general partners was traveling through new york can we come in and do an introduction with Zoom, they get the opportunity to meet all the general partners or the managing partners, right? It, it leaves, it, it gives them more of a sense 
of the team from an introductory. So it's interesting. And then maybe they'd have a follow-up in person. And so everyone's going to be a little bit different. But I think the bottom line is that we're not going to live in a technology-only world. Technology will remain as the enabler. And I think there's all of these conversations out there about what I used the phrase earlier on, democratization of private equity. And there's Moonfair in Europe and there's iCapital and all these types of entities uh, in the US. And they serve a purpose, right? And But they predominantly position themselves at the more mass affluent end of the market, which is probably a slow burner in terms of uptake and in terms of regulatory permissions for folks to be able to put private equity in their 401k, for example, right? So there's a way to go with that. So it feels to me they're more longer term plays. I think the middle piece of the market where we're positioned, so sophisticated quasi-institutional allocators, uh, they're always going to need the relationship piece. We could probably service a, a broader number of investors with technology and, and handle them then when they need to, to have an interaction. But there's a percentage of them that we're going to, to be 50-50 technology and phone or person interaction. Yeah. Well, it's super interesting. Just as you were saying that, Connor, my, the, the thought that I had in my head is I used to think, and I mentioned earlier that one might interpret some of the technology stuff as at least some small implied threat to placement business. But what I was just thinking as you were saying that is that the place you would have to get there was always the big question, right? And, and it was like almost effectively an open exchange where all of this information was shared. And so you'd always think about that and be like, well, I don't see people doing that. All right. So like, <laughs> how are we going to get there without that? But what, but what you're saying there, it makes me think, that what has become comfortable and convenient for everybody, which is like the, that in some ways now an LP dynamic that's being driven, which is like, uh, and I had this great thing that I heard early in the pandemic, which is like, well, one of the things that's changed is like in Silicon Valley for venture, for example, right? Like if somebody came to Silicon Valley for, or to specifically like Sand Hill Road for an annual meeting, then like there were like 15 other GPs. They could meet all of them. Yeah. Right, right. And yeah. so it's like, oh, well, this has changed. It's like, well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you could talk to those same people on Zoom. On right? Zoom, like, an hour later time. Well. Yeah, yeah, so it turns yeah, out yeah. that we're still okay. But one of the things I've noticed that in LPs doing that and saying, hey, well, we can like meet on Zoom and all these things in annual meetings is that it seems as though maybe the technology is starting to enable and we talked about this earlier, but like the sort of sharing of information ahead of time, right? Which is making that face-to-face far more effective in the sense that like, if you came to Silicon Valley to meet with me and I sat down and showed you a story and you were like, ah, this is not even remotely close to what we're looking for, mm-hmm. right? It's like that can now be prevented. And, and maybe that is starting to draw a little bit out of the, inf- of the information out from the GPs that otherwise they would have been reluctant to share. And perhaps what it is, is that they get a little anxious about somebody in that case, not telling the story here. You guys are using the information, making it efficient on LPs to sort of swipe right and left. But you, you're also like, you understand the story and you're actually telling it for them. And and so maybe that's like the sort of perfect storm and perfect combination of things there that is going to not take us from zero to a hundred, right? Where like, GPs that won't share anything are all of a sudden sharing, 
but it's this sort of small steps yeah. to where, hey, we can no, trust right. these I guys. Think, I think the, to, to use the analogy you, you touched on a minute ago of this kind of interconnected network with a thousand opportunities on one side and a million investors on the other and everyone seeing everything, it just doesn't work, right? Because there's too much noise there for the investor and the GPs don't want their information in front of all these people either, right? So if you could be targeted and you have the intelligence and the, the technology piece in the middle, if, if a new GP comes to us and says, here's our strategy, it's real estate, private equity, it's 150 million, it's a full three, it's focused on some value, um, this is the target return. We can plug it into our end and say, okay, well, out of our 500 investors, these 128 could potentially be interested. Yeah. And then for those 128, we can rank it for them versus the other opportunities they have. And that makes it much more effective, right? Because I'm not sure, thankfully, I haven't had to spend much time on dating apps, but I'm not sure. But I presume the theory is you still have to swipe left anyone that fits within these broad parameters you're talking about. There's no targeted uh, positioning within that, right? Which is where the value add is. And that's where a lot of the time wasting would happen. And if, if people think, oh, there's a hundred things I need to go through here and see if they're a fit. It's just, they just won't do the first two. It's like sometimes we get a, a, a pitch book from GPs and it's 48 slides long. And I'll say to them, you have a 48 slide pitch book. And they might say, well, you have this important information on all of those slides. I'll say, I'm sure there is, but I can assure you if a potential well, investor we'll gets a, get to they it. Won't, they won't, well, they're not going to read two slides because as yeah. soon as they see it's 48, they'll go, I don't have time okay. for this. Yeah. Right. It's like when you get a big, long email, people just don't do that today. They just don't have time. So everything has to make it easy and efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I happen to my parents are relocating and they are in a house they've been in for a long time. And like I it, there's this situation where it's like, well, like your stuff's everywhere. You know, they want to sell this house, like clean it up. And in one case, it was like, well, but the thought somebody had was like, well, look at this, having some stuff in this room, like shows you how much room there is to put stuff in there. And it's like, but it's not there's the buyer's stuff, yeah, right? Like yeah. let them imagine. So you got to have to tell the story their way, not how you think you want it. And when 48 slides is like, nobody's yeah. looking for a 48 slide no, story. Uh, that's, that's not an exaggeration either. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Like get rid of the clutter and get punchy with what yeah. they want to hear. And then maybe there's a point in time where you can cover the what's in the 48 slides, but don't yeah. send them 48. Uh, as your first introduction, that's for sure. For sure. Well, so what what's going to happen with these big placement agents? I'm curious. We've, uh, we, we work. No, I think there's still, I think there still is a role. And they, I mean, they're not going to go away. I think you can see many of them have broadened their offerings to, to be, they would call themselves investment banks at this point as opposed to yeah. placement agents right and they're doing secondary transactions and and all kinds of other advisory work as well and i think you know that sits alongside big exclusive mandates and i think that's the other differentiator a lot of those bigger firms they won't they'll only they'll work on an exclusive basis they'll be looking to work with funds that are raising two three four five billion dollars and they want to get paid on all of it to some extent, right? Our approach is much more that we work to a discrete list of names and we get paid when we raise capital. And that's keep it simple that way. And it's aligned and it's not open to any misinterpretation or, or mismanagement of expectation. We're not interested in building a business where we get paid for not adding value. But I do expect us to, to get paid well when we do 
add significant value. Yeah. And that's the way we, we do it. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about this because I've heard a lot about you guys. We're excited with this partnership. It's gone well so far. It's obviously going to continue. And we should check in and have another one of these podcasts down the road and see where the, where the world has taken us both at that point. Cool. Well, listen, I'm very appreciative, very grateful that you guys come in and share your thoughts. And I'm really excited that, that we get to work with you and get a little bit of a purview into what's going on. And I, I have to say, I feel proud of you too, that we get to work with you and like what you guys are doing is super cool and thoughtful and technology driven. So I'm stoked that we got a chance to, to do this. <laughs>